Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to this pre-performance uh, event. Um, can I just remind you to make certain that you've turned for mobile phones completely off, that you've turned off anything that might sing, whistle, dance, burp, or do whatever these things do nowadays. Well, um, I might do all three. <laughs> I think you're probably allowed to. Oh, well, there we are. Um, Permission granted. Can I also remind you, and I'm sure I don't have to, no cameras, no pictures, uh, no phone pictures, uh, and no recording. Though we will be recording this conversation because it will be eventually uh, shaped into a podcast, and you can hear it again on the ENO website uh, when we're done. Um, the first... Performances of a new opera are, in the life of any company, are always extraordinarily exciting. And commissions such as Jack the Ripper, The Women of Whitechapel, are proof, and should be proof, that opera is not a museum art, that it engages directly with lives that we live every day and in the way we think about ourselves and we think about the past from which we've come. Well, we're joined this evening by Ian Bell, who's the composer, of Jack the Ripper, The Women in Whitechapel. This is Ian's fourth opera um, and his third set in London, so the end of a trilogy of London operettas. First, there was A Harlot's Progress. Which was yeah. Operettas. Just operetta. You did. And you, me and you meant it as well. No, I didn't. <laughs> Even though I've spent the morning listening to operetta, um, I wouldn't dream so much. This is Ian's fourth opera. Uh, and the third of th three operas, a trilogy set in London. Um, first, there was A Harlot's Progress, which received its world premiere in 2013 at Vienna's Theatre and der Wien, and it was based on that sequence of six Hogarth images with a libretto by the English writer and novelist Peter Ackroyd. Ian's second opera was a version of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, and that had its premiere in Houston at Houston Grand Opera in December 2014. And before he started work on the work that we'll see tonight, uh, Ian wrote in parenthesis, based on David Jones' eponymous World War I epic poem, and that received its first performances at Welsh National Opera with further performances at the Royal Opera House in the summer of 2016. The sheer speed with which this man writes operas is remarkable. If you think I was once told by a contemporary composer that an opera is a year of your life, this man has devoted six years of his life and, and more to this particular form. We're also joined this evening by Dr Sheila Hanlon. Um, Sheila is a historian who specialises in women's cycling, particularly the way it intersects with gender politics. She has a PhD from York University, Toronto, and was a research fellow at the Women's Library. Uh, her research has appeared at the BBC, and she brings history to modern cycling advocacy through organisations organization such as Cycling UK. Our third guest is Philip Hutchinson on the end of the line, who has been an MC of the Whitechapel Society and who is the author of Jack the Ripper's London Then and Now. Trained as an actor, and he still performs and directs, he's guided tours around Whitechapel for nearly two decades. He's regularly invited to speak at international conferences on aspects of the Victorian East End, including Jack the Ripper. So, what are we going to do? Well, I'm going to talk with our guests first, beginning with Ian for a while, so we have some kind of context to understand the work that we're going to see together later in the evening. And then, of course, the last third will be devoted to you asking questions, uh, debating, uh, raising points, whatever you would like to do. Ian, I want to start with a very basic question. What attracted you to this subject? Well, as you said, I've done 
two other London operas before. London is my principal muse. And long before any opera commissions came my way, it was a desire of mine that I would... Let's get both of them. Let's get both. <laughs> it was a desire that, before any opera commissions came my way, that I would get to do a trilogy of London operas, mm. namely Harlots Progress, Christmas Carol and Jack the Ripper. And once um, Daniel Kramer was installed at ENO, he, I was approached by the company here and they asked what I would like to do. Mm. And I proffered this and they said yes very quickly. But my caveat was that I wanted it to be more specifically about the women in this instance and not, not focused entirely on Jack. Because although there's a wealth of material out there speculative about Jack, uh, about who he was, his motivation, psychologically based, and of course apocryphal assumptions and whatnot, for the theatrical piece, I didn't, want, I didn't feel the need for myself to explore that route. Whereas I, I was more drawn to, uh, to telling the lives of the women who up to this point have been defined solely by the way in which they died, mm. rather than the way in which they may have lived. And although we don't know a great deal about the women particularly, we do know an awful lot, thanks to writers like Jack London and W.T. Stead, about what it was like to live in Whitechapel at that time, and therefore we were able to draw on those sources and hopefully um, flesh out what life was like for the women of Whitechapel at this time. We'll come back to W.T. Stead, who's an important figure, who makes an appearance, of course, in the opera, though not, not necessarily by name. Can I ask you, I mean, how do you grown up with this story? Because you are an East End boy, aren't you? I, 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 I wish. I am descendant from. My mum was born in Myland, my grandparents are Whitechapel, so this is in my blood. And my grandmother, who I was very close to, um, as I've said in some articles already, uh, she was a great conspiracy theorist. So from, you know, she would, National Enquirer, World Weekly News, any rag she would read and believe, you know, whether it was about Princess Diana's death or anything she would go in for. And therefore, the speculation about Jack the Ripper, was it Doctor, was it Dr. Tumblety, was it a member of the royal family, was it Freeman? She loved it. Mm. And therefore, I was aware of what it was. But that wasn't my point of interest. That wasn't the bit that interested me. But I was... A, from a very young age, I was uh, attracted to through her. You've talked about doing research, uh, and, and clearly there must have been some extraordinary material to find beyond London and Stead and others. Um, I mean, the East End became an area which was almost mapped by a whole range of smart people or uh, curious people from the West End, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. What, what emerged from you from the research that you did before you settled down to the piece? That this was the time where such a thing would have happened. This was a time where the streets of London were being dug for the tube, they were being dug for the sewers. We had a spectral fog that was constantly encircling London. Particularly in the East End, we had no street lighting. So my, my, the research that was more incumbent on the librettist, but that I did as well, showed me that something was going to happen at this time. We, we had levels of poverty that were un, unspeakable. We had a terrible harvest that year. So, so that's, that's where my research led me. You'd worked with Emma Jenkins, your librettist, before, yeah, yeah. on In Parenthesis. What do you think that she brought to the project? She has the mind of a classicist. And by that I mean she's able to see universal truths in storytelling. So sh she can look at myths and she can, from those, extract that which is universal. She has that classicist's mind. And I knew that to prevent this piece from being a slasher or a whodunit, or just those things, because um, of course there are de darker elements in this piece. I'm not pretending that we're tiptoeing over things, but we have a slightly different emphasis. But I knew that with that classicist's mind, she would be able to to to, to elicit more of a wider view 
in where this piece sits within our national mythology as well as maybe a grander, grander mythology. And when you began to think about the sound world yeah. that you were going to create, what were the thoughts in your mind about what this world should sound like? So, I mean, mercifully enough, with it being my fourth opera, I, I kind of got into my stride with regards to what I do and what I like to do on my own. But I knew, without referencing directly the Victorian sound world, I knew I needed to get something in this piece that would make it so make it stand apart from my other works that I've done, but also saturate, and that's the right verb, I think, saturate it with the, with the right atmosphere. And I lit upon the instrument the cymbalum, or cymbalum, mm -hmm. however you pronounce it, which is, I don't know if any of you have seen this instrument, it's like maybe an upturned harp or a zither or just the inside of a grand piano, which is actually strung horizontally and beat with hammers. And it creates this sound, which is like a harp that's decaying or, or like a tubular bell or a guitar, which is just rotten. So, and it takes a long time to disappear. Once you strike a note and leave the pedal on, it, it takes a great deal of time to decay and disappear. And therefore that helps to create a sense of fog or mist or that, that might but there's also a sense of otherness about this instrument because yes. if we think about it, we associate it perhaps with the Roma traditions, mm -hmm. uh, with Europe, yep. uh, Eastern Europe, Hungary, and yep. so forth. So it doesn't really belong. And I wonder no. if that was also part of what you wanted. Well, I knew it would create a sense of other. Um, we don't have Jack in the piece. We don't have any direct reference to him. But I knew I needed an instrument that w had an other spectral quality that when I score it, the audience will think, ah, that's that unusual sound again, Something, something's looming. And that's, I think it's that other quality that you, that you mentioned that, that, that gives it that. And, and do you assign particular instruments, a combination of instruments for your characters? No, well, not really. Um, it, maybe I have without realising. I, I tend to, to more favour musical gesture. So when I enrobe a character orchestrally, I think about what their gait is, how they move, what their personality is, and therefore we'll, we'll dress them accordingly orchestrally. So that me might mean that we have a character called Squibby, who's semi-based on a real character in, in, the, in the Ripper um, canon. And in this instance, he's a barrow boy who's very... It, it, I hate using the phrase because it's so well-trodden, but he's a cheeky chappy, and therefore I, I wanted to create a sound world around him that would... That would convey that and therefore we have lots of very rapid staccati winds and because oh, he's bumbling and he's coming in there and it's all a bit messy uh, so that's rather than initial instruments that I, I tend to favor musical gesture or, or uh, yeah phrasing let's, let's let's broaden the discussion Philip can I ask you what do you think the continuing appeal of this piece of history is the world is obsessed with dark tourism Though we don't want to actually look, look in ourselves, we are fascinated by the macabre and the unpleasant uh, because it's, it, uh, it reflects what we're, what we're scared of, but what could potentially lie within all of us. Sheila, do you, do you feel that's the case? Is this the appeal of the story that it's about the macabre, it's the dark, it's the inexplicable? I think a lot of it is linked to our ideas of what the East End was in the Victorian era. Um, and even but as soon as the, the murders happened, there was a lot of um, myth that was built up around Jack the Ripper, and that fed in so well to some of the things that you were talking about, the poverty, um, the conditions, those dark fogs, the idea of um, the East End as being someplace which was you know, it was 
it, it was somehow really attractive to people from the, from the West End who saw it as a completely, an, an other world. Um, and then Jack the Ripper was, of course, part of that um, appeal, um, even if they didn't want to be there. They wanted to know what was going on in that kind of notorious parts of, of London. And that's really stuck with us. Um, we're interested, of course, in, in, in murders, in, in mysteries, and I don't think those have been any hotter than they are now if you look at what's on Netflix at the moment. And I think Jack the Ripper really kind of was one of the original stories that really got people's attention, kind of for all the wrong reasons, but all the right reasons at the same time. I mean, we can't hide the fact that it's also a hot topic, or it's also resonated throughout the decades because we don't know who he is, and the element of mystery does propel and add, and add a layer of intrigue that maybe wouldn't be there had, had his identity been, been assumed and found. I might say one other reason why it, it's remained popular is because this was the first time that uh, a serial murder had been known at the time it was occurring. We had people in Victorian times who had actually killed far more victims than the Whitechapel murderer did, but uh, these crimes were found afterwards. There had been uh, domestic poisonings, and when one too many people died, cases like William Palmer, uh, Mary Ann Cotton, um, then these things were found afterwards. It was also the time of the election of the first ever London County Council, and it was being used as a political pawn. Uh, that the, the press began saying, look at the abandonment of those in the, in the East End. Uh, shouldn't something be done, change the government now? Why is the story, or maybe I'm not right, please correct me, Philip, if I'm wrong, why is the story always told from Jack's perspective? Okay, it's, it's a very difficult one to answer. Unfortunately, it lies within our fascination um, with our love of the archetypal bogeyman. Because the man's not been identified, and because he's been charged by the media as being uh, th this romantic, and I, I use the word advisedly, figure of being uh, this character in a cloak and a top hat and a Gladstone bag, which almost certainly does not fit reality. Uh, people love that romantic gesture, and in movies over the, over the decades, <clears throat> they always show the image as being, uh, I mean, I always, I always say the idea of Barbara Windsor in the early 60s, standing in the dark alley going, hello, cheeky, and she's wearing a lace dress, and she's, she's young and buxom, and this man, suave gentleman, comes out, just stabs her once with a knife, she goes, ah, and falls down, and he runs off. That's, that's the public perception of it, but the reality is very gruesome, and so the media has a great deal to play in that. That's, that's why people find it, because they find him a cheeky anti-hero. Um, the reality is he was a, a scumbag. <laughs> and, 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 and did you, is that a view you'd have shared? In fact, the story's always been Jack's story, and that's not actually a very interesting story, because we don't know what happened. Exactly right, exactly right. And yet we have five, minimum of five, maybe nine, maybe more women, who lived in London at a time where in the East End, maybe one in four women were obliged to sell their bodies at one time or other, where they could sell their bodies for just a loaf of bread, mm. um, where DOS houses at the time, which you will see this evening, were often just storehouses for coffins in which you could pay four pence a night to sleep in. Or if you were a little bit shorter of money, there would be a rope hung from one side of the room to another, like a washing line over which you would hang and sleep, hung by your armpits. Um, these are rich lives, um, which are which. Who's who's the way in which they died is 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 belies the way the richness of 
of their existence. Sheila, is this another example, though, perhaps, of how history is always told by men, and men have appropriated history, and rescuing other histories, women's histories, her stories, is actually part of what we ought to be doing? Mm. I think it really is important, uh, and I think this opera is actually a, a, a huge step in kind of reclaiming the, 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 the lives of these women, because they did indeed live in a, very, in a rich community. Uh, they tend to be turned into one-dimensional characters in most of the histories uh, that we read about Jack the Ripper, and we know that that's just not true. There was a community, um, they knew each other. Uh, in almost every, every case, on the night they, they were murdered, they'd been seen by their friends. Um, people knew what they'd been doing in the hours leading up, and up to their deaths. And of course, there many of them were married. Um, they weren't living with their husbands, but it was just part of the circumstances of the era. So we, we do actually know little bits about them that I think can be used, as has happened in, in the opera, to kind of flesh out what we know about them as women and also about the, about the community itself as well. You talked earlier about, about Whitechapel and, and how you know, this became a kind of other to uh, an, an source of anxiety. Mm. Um, what, what actually was Whitechapel like at this time? Mm. Um, it was a source of anxiety, but it was also a source of enticement. Um, so we know a lot about what uh, Whitechapel and the East End were like, in part because there were quite a few people who were writing about it, either for newspapers, um, like W. T. Stead, who we'll talk about later, or, or books as well. There were lots of um, uh, philanthropists who were going in and recording what was going on in the East End as well. So we know that it was densely populated, um, particularly in the areas where there, there were rookeries, and a lot of them were run down. You, you'll need to explain rookeries. Uh, rookeries. So you can imagine, um, at one point, the East End had been a bit more prosperous and then um, the economy declined. So some of the, the terrace houses and the bigger houses were divided up. So you'd have um, tiny little rooms with you know, one or two or three families living in them or DOS houses. So um, if you were, we know, we know from some of the uh, slum tourists that when you went past the temple into the East End, one of the things that you would notice was a brightly lit high street but only one brightly lit high street. And that's where all the great entertainment was. That's where the pubs were, that's where the music hall was. But then just off of that lit street were these very dark alleys and rookeries. Um, and they were so notorious that the police wouldn't even chase criminals into them um, because they, they knew that they could, they could escape. And of course, anyone who wasn't familiar with the area would be in a very prone, vulnerable position. Um, in those rookeries, of course, that's where we find these really deplorable conditions. Um, a lot of people living together, a lot of um, illicit economies as well. But of course, that's how people had to, especially women, had to uh, make their living um, in, in the East End. The dock industry, of course, is where most of the men worked, uh, down at the dockyards. There's lots of little bits of industry and for women, it might be, um, it might be a, a bit of domestic service, it might be a bit of home industries, things like hat making or cigarette box making, um, the slop houses, which were making really cheap uh, kind of throwaway clothes and apparel, but they weren't reliable as a source of income. And then that's where we find women 
basically making ends meet any way they could, especially uh, women, like a lot of the murder victims who um, their husbands had died or their husbands had left them or they'd abandoned their husbands or they'd um, left uh, domestic service because it was so terrible. Uh, and so you do have this kind of rich tapestry of people getting by any way they can by living in cheap housing, by taking small jobs wherever they can, and by um, dabbling in prostitution. But of course, prostitution had a very different kind of reputation and definition in the Victorian era. We'll, we'll come back to that. Can I ask you, I mean, we think um, perhaps of the East End, maybe wrongly at this period, maybe slightly later, but we think of it as being essentially the first point of contact with Britain, England, London for immigrants coming in. We think particularly at this bit of there being an enormous Jewish community who've come um, to escape the persecutions uh, in either Tsarist Russia or indeed Poland, anti-Semitism. Is that true? Yes, to an, to an extent it is. Uh, there were enclaves there. Um, initially, that part of Whitechapel had initially been settled for the first time. It had been uh, an artillery ground for Henry VIII. The first people to settle there were the Huguenots escaping persecution in Catholic France at the end of the, of the uh, 17th century. At that time, that was the very much the boundary of London. Beyond that was, was fields, and um, the Whitechapel Hospital, when it was built, was, was virtually in, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so that became an immigrant area. Uh, the docks, of course, were, were far away. Very often the immigrants came to Tilbury docks in, in Essex, but a lot of them did also come through, through the part of West India docks and, and what have you. Um, yeah, the Jews escaped and the pogroms were there. They weren't the, 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 the second immigrant community. The, the Irish were over here. Uh, initially, the Navvies building the canals and then those escaping the potato famine in the 1840s. Then, then it became the Jewish community dur during the pogroms. And there had been, as there always is with the immigrant communities when they've come at one time with refugee status, a lot of suspicion. Uh, many of them, uh, because a lot of them hadn't learned English, uh, and, and some of them hardly ever did, uh, not only because, of course, the, the, the language was not even using a, a character system that, that we're familiar with, so everything seemed very alien. And um, this little Englander thing with the people that had lived there, that had been there for generations, as always happens, there was a great deal of prejudice towards them. They were very much integrated within themselves, um, but, but generally, they, they, they were largely persecuted. Uh, murders and the things were, were, were very rare, but, but insults, theft and things were quite common. Mm. Ian, as you were beginning to think about your principal characters, the women, what kind of identities socially were you establishing for them within this community? Well, what was important was that they weren't just Barbara Windsor. You know, we can have that element, and so, you know, you will see the comedic element, because one thing we do know about humanity is that in times of dire hard, hardship, we are able to find humour, we are able to find tenderness and joy and lightness. And that was important that we were able to inject this piece with a sense of levity um, to render the piece more human, but also just for the dramatic impetus of the evening, just so it's not this constant uh, juggernaut. So we, it was important for us to see that people have different roles within a community. You do have the more f motherly characters. You can have the more flirtatious people. You can have the more earthy people. And you can have the more nervous. You know, We try to just... Although one can never, in two hours, um, expect to create fully three-dimensional, realised characters when they're all, apart from Mary Kelly, secondary characters, we did try and explore the different facets of womanhood within those women. Mm -hmm. um, 
that there was there were they were not nymphomaniacs they were not victims in and of themselves um, that was very important that we saw that and addressed and that. what public spaces were available to them as women I mean, where could they go socially well we we know that there were two pubs well alcoholism as you know you, you were talking about the women at the time and I was going to say at the time alcoholism was a huge problem among the, the poorest classes in the East End at that time, and therefore the pub would be a very popular place. And we do know that um, a few of the women did, on the night that they were killed, rather than spending their money on their DOS, they actually spent the money on alcohol a few times over. And as such, the pub was, was an important place. And, and we know that at the time they had the Britannia, which is no longer with us, and the Ten Bells, which is. Um, we chose between one or the other in this piece, and we decided just for prosody, for musical setting of the word, the Britannia was a far easier <laughs> word to set than the Ten Bells. And obviously with my surname, a little less referential as well. <laughs> that'd, that'd be a little too self-referential. Self um, one bell's enough, rather than ten. <laughs> um, so they had that, what we do have in the piece, as well as the Doss house, when they're woken up, mm. in which they live, uh, and we have it as a single-sex Doss house, um, we just have them chatting on the street, street corners. There are pictures of the women of Spitalfields and Whitechapel at the time where you just see these enclaves of women in these shuts and these alleys. Just women and children just looking at, obviously, a photographer who would have been a source of curiosity at the time, who's there to, to uh, follow them as a photojournalist. You see these amazing pictures of women plaiting hemp or just looking directly in a group of two dozen women, clearly very hardworking women. So we use the street, the pub, and the DOS as their places of community. Because we really wanted to impart a sense of community within this piece. And the, the, although it's not very likely these women knew each other, they did live on in and around Dorset Street. So we go from what was probably a passing nodding acquaintance that they may have had, we actually make so they do know each other for dramatic purposes. We're not implying that in reality that they knew each other. But when Emma and I were devising the piece, we had to see how far factual truth would take us and then onto that superimpose historical truth so although not everything that you see happens to Annie Chapman or Mary Kelly happened to Annie Chapman or Mary Kelly in real life everything and I mean everything that happens in this piece happens to women in Whitechapel at the time. Let's turn to prostitution and um, I mean, there are a number of ways in which the late 19th century thought about prostitution. Um, at one end, I suppose, there's George Bernard Shaw and the celebrated preface to Mrs. Warren's profession. Um, at the other end, there is the kind of moral uh, outrage professed by, in particular, the church. What, 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 do, what is actually prostitution? What does prostitution mean in the context of this what East End we've been talking about? It's very different in the Victorian era than um, the kind of black and white definition that we have of who, who is a sex worker now. Um, and that's in part because it was so tied up in, the cons in, in ideas about um, the purity of women. And certainly in this era, we see the uh, lots of ideas around the domesticated angel of the house emerging. And of course, the women of the East End are seen as a stark contrast to that. Um, so the definitions of who's a prostitute and who isn't that we see coming out in a lot of um, contemporary or Victorian work um, puts a lot of people in that category who we may not put in, in the, the category of prostitution in a more modern view. And so that could include women who are 
not living in traditional married relationships. Um, it could include women who, you know, maybe they are relying on sex to get other things that they need in life, like a place to, a place to live, a roof over their heads, or in some cases, even food. Um, we know that at least one of the, the Jack the Ripper victims actually had um, a deal with um, kind of like a, kind of like a live-in boyfriend. And um, when, she, when they were looking into, into her murder, she told the police, or he told the police, well, we, we kept running into each other and we just kind of came to an arrangement. Um, and to us, you know, that makes the, we, we can empathize and say, yeah, it was, it was really hard. And these people found each other and they were, you know, living together. Um, and she, but to the Victorian mind, that of course may have been seen as an extension of prostitution. So when we look at police statistics saying things like there are over a thousand prostitutes in Whitechapel, or um, there's a police stat from, uh, from around 1888 saying that there were 4,000 4, prostitutes in Victorian London. We don't actually know. We can't really put a number on those because prostitution was um, in a lot of ways part, well, part, part of the illicit economy, but it was also defined in different ways as well. So it kind of depends who, who you ask at the time. Philip, you were nodding your head when, when, when Sheila talked about it being part of the economy. I love you, the term. But, but do, you see, do you see prostitution essentially within this community as being an economic choice? Um, a, a dire one maybe, but a, an economic choice oh, for I a woman? I don't think choice enters into the equation at all. It's, it's a financial necessity. Any woman who found herself down on her luck, who was living a hand-to-mouth existence, could find herself forced to sell herself simply to get a bed for the night. This was not a choice. This, this, was, this was need. Mm. Uh, none of these women did this through choice, and uh, I don't think any of these women were full-time prostitutes. It was, it was a last resort. They had nowhere else to go. The irony being, of course, their existences were so awful that, as indeed happened with, with uh, Polly Nichols, she went and spent her money that she had to get drunk instead of going mm. to a DOS house because she was so mm. depressed. Mm. And then she found herself without it again. And, and how did the rest of the community, as far as we know, view those women who chose to work as sex workers, either part-time or occasionally, or more, 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 more fully? As far as I'm aware, in the East End itself, it wasn't frowned upon at all. Uh, it wouldn't be a dirty family secret. Nowadays, people would certainly think about it that way. But in those days, uh, it, it would be perfectly normal. You know, Aunt Mary had gone out on the game one night, and she'd done it a few times. It was viewed very differently in the West End. Mm. Uh, the, the, the common feeling amongst the middle classes uh, who had no real idea, it was almost a ghetto in many respects, uh, they had no real idea that people lived in this way and they had assumed that anybody living in poverty had done it through slovenliness, through uh, laziness and through low moral attitudes. I think you only need to look at the way in which Mary Kelly, the final of the canonical victims, had a send-off when, um, when her body was taken to be buried in the Far East End people lined the streets and there was mm -hmm. there was a great deal at the beginning there wasn't because people weren't sure what was going on uh, you know the, with the first two it's it's not a crime spree it's it, it, this these are isolated incidents but by the time it came around to mary kelly that there was a deep deep um release of compassion mm. and and grief i would say public grief to her to her death you have a character called a journalist the journalist tell me a bit about him so we wanted to show this piece can't be women good men bad that's that's too black and white that's too simplistic of you 
And there were compassionate men writing at the time, um, including W.T. Stead and, and Jack London, who, who were shining a light on, on, on contemporary London. And we wanted to shine a light on their compassion and their bravery. And W.T. Stead was a writer who ensconced himself in a Doss house to enable him to have a closer look and to write more intensely about the subject of, of the women, women's condition in the East End at the time. And I guess you guys know a lot more than I do, so if you want to take it you, you've, you've, you've done a lot of work on Stead, I think, haven't you? Yes, um, I happen to be a big W.T. Stead fan, in part because he's a controversial character. So he, um, he was a journalist, and on one hand, he invented investigative journalism, but on the other hand, he's considered to be the father of the tabloid and a muckraker. Um, so just a bit about him. He was um, born in the 1840s in Northumberland. Um, he cut his teeth on a provincial newspaper, as most journalists do, the Northern Echo, um, and then moved down to London, where he became first deputy edi editor and then editor of the Pall Mall Gazette. And the Pall Mall Gazette was one of the key media sources for reporting during the Jack the Ripper um, murders. And even before that, W.T. Stead had already kind of immersed himself in the, in the life of the East End and um, in things like the, uh, the campaign to have the Contagious Diseases Act appealed. And the Contagious Diseases Act, um, just a bit of background about it, it um, came in in 1864, and it was um, an act that meant that women who were considered to be prostitutes, mostly who were working in garrison towns or around the army, around the navy, um, could actually be pulled off the streets and inspected to see if they were ca carrying any venereal diseases. So, um, and those inspections were not very nice, and if they were found to be diseased, they were thrown in lock hospitals for at least three months, which were also not very nice. I won't go into the details of the treatment they received, but it was quite horrific and involved a lot of mercury. Um, so W.T. Stead joined up with Josephine Butler to try and have that act um, appealed basically. And there was a huge group of middle class and upper class women who became interested in prostitution and trying to appeal the act. So that's one place where we see W.T. Stead starting to think about prostitutes and um, looking at it from a, a moral standpoint and basically trying to defend their rights as human beings. He became most notorious when he was working at the Pall Mall Gazette for something that's known as the Maiden Tributes of Modern Babylon. And in that case, what W.T. Stead did, working with Josephine Butler again from the Venereal Diseases Act Appeal, um, he actually wanted to prove that child's pros child prostitution was happening and that you could basically buy or procure a virgin. So to prove that it actually happened, he went into, into disguise um, and he worked with two women on this, one of whom was a reporter for his newspaper he was a great friend of women, and another who worked for the Salvation Army. And they, they, through his sources, they found a mother who was so desperate for money, she was willing to sell her own daughter, her own daughter's virginity, although she claimed she didn't know what she was doing, for five pounds. And W.T. Stead went through the process of procuring poor Eliza of um, going to the brothel where her mother had delivered her, 
um, the brothel keeper had drugged her and put her in a room, and this was actually part of the standard procedure. They would have a room for these yeah. exact things in every yeah. one of these houses. Yeah. And so poor Eliza was drugged and she was unconscious. W.T. Stead went into the room with her, closed the door. She woke up and screamed when she saw him. And then W.T. Stead left um, and, Eliza, uh, and revealed what had happened in a serial article which was sensational, sold a lot of newspapers, but also brought attention to the case. Um, Eliza was actually rescued by the Salvation Army, and she didn't go back to her mother. She actually went to live with a family that the Salvation Army set her up with. And poor W.T. Stead ended up doing three months in Colbath Prison uh, because he was charged with abduction. And the reason he was charged with abduction was because he hadn't gotten the permission of Eliza's father to purchase her. The good, the good thing that came out of that was that, um, well, lots of people found out about the case, and uh, there, there was a, a, a bill that was enacted that changed the age of consent from 13 to 16. It also had some other implications about homosexuality, which we're not very happy about. But in the case of women, uh, it, it, did, it, did make a, it did make a difference. And W.T. Stead, after he was released from, from, from prison, he was very proud of his, what he called his triumph. And every November, to celebrate his triumph, as he, as he called it, he put on his prison suit. Um, <laughs> and the, and cold bath prisons let him, him keep the prison uni uniform. And it's actually, there's lots of photographs, and you can see him growing older, and the uniform getting a bit tighter, and the buttons popping a little bit. Um, but he was very proud of that. Philip, a last question before we, we invite the audience to join us. I mean, to what extent, um, thinking about what we've just heard and, 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 and the piece we're going to see, is the East End a site of kind of sexual tourism for people, middle class people and others from the West? Now or...? No, then, oh, then, then. then. I wouldn't... <laughs> I, I want you to be able to leave the room. <laughs> Sorry, I, I thought you said it is. Yeah. <laughs> In this period. Um, I wouldn't say specifically more than anywhere else. Uh, I would say each area really had its clientele and the prices would reflect, and I'm sorry if this sounds really base, but it's, it's, it's the way they would have thought of it, the prices would reflect what you were getting. Mm. The, the general idea was if you were young and pretty and could mm. command high prices, you'd be working the streets of the West End, mm. then you'd move further, further and further east, and when you lost your looks and you lost your teeth and you were becoming uh, you know, alcoholic and riddled with gin, then you'd be the cheapest ones available in the East End. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so the, 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 I don't think people were going there anymore than they would do anywhere else. Okay. Just the standard was, was yeah. different. Ladies and gentlemen, if there are things you'd like to ask or comments you'd like to make uh, to our guests, please put your hand up and wait for me and I will, will point my hand. Who would like to perhaps raise an issue out of what we've heard? The rich and complex culture of this part of London. Oh, yes, I'm Christopher Cook. <laughs> Sorry. Anyone want to start a question? Yes. Microphone coming. Yeah. Just to, to ask Ian if he could tell us a little more about, for example, the music he wrote for Mary. I know that's a, a large ask, but it, I would love to hear a bit more about About that. Mary particularly. And the music. And 
I thought your, your, your description a little bit about the music of the Barrow Boy was lovely. Oh, and I I'd see. Love to well, see a little bit Mary, Mary herself is, is, is the prima donna of the piece um, because the, the nature of her being the final victim means that she's in the piece a lot longer. And we've, we've given her a daughter in this piece who is actually representative of Eliza mm. in the W.T. Stead story. So we've, we've conflated some, some, some history from the time. Mary herself doesn't have this kind of enrobement because she's in it all the time. So what is more key about Mary is the type of vocal writing I've chosen for her. So Mary, we have in this piece six sopranos, which is quite rare. Six sopranos who have all got something to say. And Mary, um, she's the youngest of the voices because the majority of the Ripper women, of the Ripper victims, were in their 40s, mid to late 40s, um, Mary Kelly being the youngest at the age of 25. So she, she has the highest line, she's got the most strident of lines, and because she, she is the prima donna, she has the most dramatic of the writing, so she takes the higher parts in the harmonies, um, because she has to deal with rage and issues of anger at certain type, uh, parts of the piece. Um, I've used the, the idea of coloratura writing, so much more um, filigree in, in, in the vocal writing to convey a sense of uh, more dramatic intent. So uh, you'll hear her, as I said, highlighting in the ensembles, more bravura writing, and just a lot more stage time. Um, oftentimes, also, you'll hear Mary um, weeping and being sad and, and mourning, and you, you'll be familiar as the piece goes on, that you'll hear lots of high strings underneath her. Um, not that that's so much a uh, representative of her herself, but of the mood she was in at the time. You hear a kind of very plangent, very, very sorrowful high string texture underneath her. Not at all. Great, thank you. There was a question, I think, over here. Yes. And then a gentleman. It's on the same subject of uh, Mary Kelly, Ian. Just a small point. Uh, when you said that uh, her funeral, the streets were lined yes. with people, is that something that's referred to in your opera, or is that real life? That's real life, but we actually, because we wanted to give a little bit of a nod to that, just before she dies, um, she uh, fantasises her own funeral. She, she, she dreams, she's having a nightmare, and it's a full-on East End funeral, because we wanted to reflect. So when I mean full-on East End, feathers, Everyone's in the black, uh, without horses in this production, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but we wanted to give a gentle nod to the future that we knew she was going to have, um, and that she may have feared that she had. Well, she would never have expected to have had such a send-off, but we wanted to give a, a bit of a nod to that and a wink. There was a question at the back, I think. Yes. I, I think I can probably cope out the... Oh, uh, certainly, sir. So. <laughs> um, just, just influences, you did Christmas Carol... So you've had some encounters with Dickens. I, I have. Wonder whether that affected at all. And musical influences, Berg, Lulu, and Tripoli Opera. Any? Not really. No. Um, I love Berg and I love Kurt Weill, but because I've been lucky enough to be writing for about twenty years, I kind of have my own my costume <laughs> now, and I didn't feel I needed to reference or. Um, but it 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 was a pleasure revisiting the Victorian period be it 44 years later from Christmas Carol, um, because I, I grew very fond of it. Um, I, the re one of the reasons I wanted to write Christmas Carol was because the opera I wrote just before, like with a month gap between them, was Hogarth's Harlot's Progress, a piece that goes from very light to very dark. 
and I knew that Christmas Carol would go from very dark to very light. So that was a, that was for the cure and the re the respite of it all. Um, I would say musically, I've threaded little things in and out of them that only I know that that just kind of make them wink at each other and make them brothers and sisters to one another. But there's there's no motivic thing. You think, oh yes, because he's referred to because that's the prostitution motif from the Harlots Progress, and there's there's none of that. But just gentle little touches. Another question, which might probably be our last. Who would like to? Anyone? Yes, just wait. The microphone is is coming. I just wondered if Ian perhaps had seen the BBC program on called Ripper Street, whether the Whitechapel influence. I haven't. Oh. I know of it, <laughs> and I, you know it's got um, uh, McFadden. Uh, he thinks he's a, a tremendous actor in it, but no, I haven't. No. So very quick answer to that. Very, very. I'm, I'm probably a very disappointing answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sure. Ladies and gentlemen, some thank yous. Thank you to all of you for being a wonderfully attentive audience. But our thanks, of course, to our three guests: Sheila Hanlon, Ian Bell, and Philip Hutchison. Thank you all very much.